Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Miriam Knight, the publisher of New Consciousness Review, a digital multimedia magazine and website where we review the top books and films having an impact on the global awakening. Our website is ncreview.com. And on this show, we explore the many and varied faces of conscious awakening, what that can mean in your life, and we celebrate consciousness in action. We have a lovely guest today, Glenn Aparicio Parry, is the author of a new book called Original Thinking, a radical revision of time, revisioning of time, humanity, and nature. In it, he asks provocative questions like, is it possible to have an original thought? What does it mean to be human? Why have we lost our connection with nature? And if we don't regain it, are we heading toward a catastrophic future? Now, these questions challenge us to reconsider many of our most basic assumptions, which is what Glenn is all about. He's a writer, educator, international speaker, entrepreneur, and visionary. His lifelong passion is to reform thinking and education into a coherent, cohesive whole. He's the founder, past president of the Seed Institute, and is also currently the president of the think tank, the Circle for Original Thinking. He organized and participated in the groundbreaking Language of Spirit conferences that brought together Native and Western scientists in dialogue, all of which inspired this, his debut book, Original Thinking. I'm very honored to welcome Glenn Aparicio Parry. Welcome, Glenn. Thank you, Miriam. It's a pleasure to be with you. Glenn, you said in our conversation earlier that you would like to kick off our discussion with a prayer. I was most Yes, honest. thank you. I, I, the origin of thinking is thinking. So originally, all our thoughts were prayers. And it's a, it's, I always like to begin with, with blessing, begin with prayer. And it's a, it's a beautiful spring day here where I am, here in New Mexico. Uh, and it's just so enjoyable to see the return of life the sap that's flowing, the doves are cooing, the, uh, and life is returning. And those evergreen trees that stood guard over the winter, I thank them too. I thank all the elements, the light, the air, the water, and the earth, because we are made of the elements. And I, and I pray that the people understand that the elements are our life, that they are aware, and to welcome them into their life, like kin, like in a familial way. And I thank all the ancestors and everything that has happened to bring us to this moment in time. And I welcome in all the ancestors that may be connected to our listeners. And I, I, I'm grateful for the wisdom that we've gained in our lives that we can impart to future generations. I'm also very thankful for the children coming in and the wisdom they bring from another dimension. And thankful to be speaking with you. Thank you, Miriam. Thank you for this day and uh, this opportunity. So, aho. Aho. Thank you, Glenn. You're welcome. You, you describe original thinking as being an expansive view that sees every aspect of creation 
as radically interconnected, inclusive, and whole. This is the worldview still found among many indigenous societies. Why do you think we strayed so far from it? Hmm. Well, we did. We, thank you for the question. Um, we strayed surreptitiously. We strayed unwittingly and unconsciously. It's it's and gradually. Um, but, but most of the uh, change has come about in the last 500 years, and it had been creeping into consciousness before then. But. It's really in the, in the Renaissance, which is actually a beautiful period, but a very pivotal period, a period that began celebrating the past. I mean, the symbol of the Renaissance was Janus, the god of, uh, of what we, we tend to, he's the god of doorways, really, but we tend to now, with our modern view, we consider him uh, the the god of uh, backwards and forwards, but that's an overlay, as I'll get into in a minute. But it was in the Renaissance, and it's actually exactly 500 years ago, we can pinpoint it, we can say what had happened, that an artist named Bruno Shelley looks in a mirror, and he paints with all the best of intent, he paints, he wants to paint as God sees the world. So he paints as he sees in the mirror. And then another fellow came around, uh, Alberto Villodi, and he systematized linear perspective. He wrote a book that told people exactly how to do it, describing how you make the vanishing point, etc. And now we're all familiar with this in uh, art school. And even if you didn't go to art school, we're familiar with the idea, but the the important thing about it is that what people don't realize is that how different our consciousness was prior to perspective and how much we embraced perspective as being real after it came about. Uh, and what I'm suggesting is that, that actually any worldview or any view includes certain ways of seeing and systematically excludes other ways of seeing. So, you know, you can... There are modern Native American artists that actually are able to use, uh, like Pablita Velarde, she's able to use linear perspective when she wants to, and when she doesn't want to, she doesn't use it at all. <laughs> one, of her, one of her famous paintings was of an old grandfather storyteller, and you see the storyteller in the middle there, and the storyteller is way, way larger than life. Well... That's because that's the way she perceived the grandfather and the importance of that story. Um, so there, there's a lot of ways of, of, of seeing the world. But with the advent of linear perspective, we began to shift our consciousness in a very dramatic way. So, for instance, the, the ancient Greeks, they actually saw the past as ahead of them. Why? Because for them that made sense because they have, the past had already manifested, so they had eyes to see it in front of us. Where the future was behind them, they couldn't see it, and therefore they couldn't foretell the future. They would need to go to an oracle um, to see the future. And for the Greeks, for the ancient Greeks, it was hubris to predict 
the future. But what happens when we, with linear perspective, when we're now facing forward, we begin to feel that the that things, objects closer to us are in our near future, objects further from us are in the distant future. We use that words, those words exactly, the distant future. Uh, and so the future now is in front of us. Why does that matter? It matters because once the future became in front of us, we started to think of ways we could control it. Because now we think we can see it, let's control it. And that's the precursor of what is really known as modern science, with the idea of being able to make a hypothesis for an experiment, conduct the experiment, see the result, and see if you can repeat the result. Which sounds like absolutely a great thing, and it has a lot of benefit, but it also shifts the way we're interacting with the world. There's many other ways our worldview has shifted, too. Now, with linear perspective, the, we look at objects, but the, the space between the objects is now considered empty. <laughs> Now, in, in, in antiquity, we didn't think like that. The space between objects was a plenum for the Greeks. It was full. It was vibrating. It was energy. And I, I really think that's a, a very valid worldview that needs to be recovered because it makes sense to me. You know, I, I said a prayer to the elements. I say a prayer to the elements every day, Miriam, because we are made of the elements. And... It's the elements that make us alive. So when we breathe, we have to breathe to stay alive. So why is the air we're breathing considered not alive if it keeps us alive? I mean, this is a very simple way of looking at it, but I think it's really important to think like this sometimes. And the same thing for water. We are composed of 70% water. But unfortunately... The modern scientific view views the elements as merely the constituents of life and not alive themselves. So we don't tend to think of rivers, oceans, streams, and underground aquifers as alive. But that is also what is keeping us alive. So what I'm suggesting is that when you step away from the linear perspectival view, the view that separates your eye from the world, you get, you, you get back immersed in it. <laughs> you become part of the world. And the, the slippery slope that has occurred when we separate ourselves from the world is why we have been systematically destroying the elements on the planet because we don't think of them as kin. And we really need to start thinking that way again, if you see what I mean. I absolutely see what you mean. I, I, I was thinking of that, uh, that famous uh, Brunelleschi painting where you know, the, the lines converge, and it's exactly as you say. The viewer is actually outside of the frame looking in, and as we separate ourselves from the world, we also have the illusion that we can control it and yes. that is the other another slippery slope that you described your book is so it really has to be experienced as much as read mm. um, 
it, it's so overwhelming to to kind of weave your way through through history, through perspective, through story. I love the way you use storytelling as an integral part of conveying your ideas. Mm. Thank you. One of the nicest things anybody ever said about my book was said by Victoria Hanshin, who said she felt like she was being rocked in the cradle between the left and the right brain. <laughs> and, and that is exactly what I was trying to do. You know, so, and that's why story is prominently there. And uh, if if you would, I'd, I'd love to share a story that also gives a... Uh, was one of the impetuses for writing the book. Would that be okay? Um, absolutely. I was going to okay. tell um, the story. I mean, the, the, the primary topic. story that I write in the book, I'll just briefly say, is that the book emerged out, as you mentioned in, uh, in your introduction, out of wonderful dialogue circles that were moderated by Leroy Little Bear. And, and uh, it was an organization that I founded, the Seed Institute, that held them from 1999 to 2011, 13 of them. And the very first question he asked, the Seed question was, is it possible to come up with an original thought? So that was a, that was a very important uh, reason for the book because that Seed question just penetrated my being, and it still is. And it did lead to the formation of the book. But I also had a lot of experiences um, in nature and sometimes in Native American ceremony. And I wanted to share one with your, with your listeners that I think they would appreciate. Um, and it gives you a feeling, a different kind of feeling, because um, I was blessed to be invited by Grandfather Leon Secatero, who was the headman of the Canyon Cito Band of Navajo, just 20, 20 their, their, their reservation is about 25 miles west of Albuquerque. And, uh, but their ancestral lands stretch out to the north quite a ways from there. And I was blessed to be invited to their annual New Year's ceremony, which takes place in October. Um, and I had been invited a number of years, but I never thought I was, you know, I thought I was too busy or something to come. But then finally, one year, um, I was putting together a conference, and it wasn't enrolling enough. And you know what? It was. A, it turned out to be the best blessing ever because I gave over and I said, you know, I don't. I let's put aside the, these ways that I've been using. Let's go and pray. Let's let's accept the invitation that had been there. And so we went, I went there, and it's a very long journey to go there over over uh, dirt roads that go up and down. They call it Dimensions Hills. It's just it's just an amazing back back way way remote location, far away from anything near Mount Taylor, uh, which is west of Albuquerque. For those that know the the Western Mountain sacred to the Navajo. And so when we arrive there, we, we go into the ceremonial hogan, which is not a building, actually. It's a, a circle, a fire circle. Um, and we sweep that. We prepare. And we were there up until late in the night telling stories. And at one point, I was asked to tend the fire. 
and uh, this was my first time being there, and I was felt honored, but I didn't really understand what it meant to tend a ceremonial fire, and I learned a lot that evening. I learned that you're supposed to feed the fire, feed the fire sacred tobacco, feed the fire, uh, you can even feed the fire food or feed the fire coffee if the fire is tired. <laughs> you, you have a relationship with the fire. It's more than just putting on logs. Um, so I did that, and then it became really late, and everybody went to their tents to go to sleep, and I did too. Just uh, It was my first year again, and I didn't know. I assumed somebody would take care of tending the fire. So I went into a deep sleep, and then I awakened, hearing the voice of Grandfather Leon in my ear, and he had the most mellifluous, sweet voice, and he just said, Glenn, get up and tend the fire. But he wasn't there. It was just his voice, and so... I got up, and it was very cold out there, you know, so I was sleeping with, you know, with my clothes on, so I just had to put on some shoes. I got up, I got out of the tent, and wow, I proceeded to actually fall over because uh, I was literally floored by the stars, the canopy of stars that were so immense, you know, and that's one of the reasons I moved to New Mexico. We have just beautiful stars, but this out here... It was amazing. So I literally fell over, but then I got back up. I never use a flashlight because I actually don't believe in them in a way because your eyes can adjust, uh, particularly with all that starlight and looking at the distant fire over 150 yards away or so that I was going to walk to. So I walked to the fire. And when I got there, it was indeed really close to dying and needed to be rebuilt. And so I did that, and I rebuilt it into a roaring blaze. Um, and then I returned to sleep. Actually, for, it turned out to be a pretty short time where um, I'm awakened, um, as they traditionally do there. Um, I was actually told uh, it was a joke. I didn't realize that I would be awakened to beautiful Native American flute, but instead I was awakened to to uh, Leland, a man who's, who's yelling, uh, prepare yourself, I'm going to yell, yelling, coffee, coffee. So, you know, uh, you're burning daylight. And anyway, so I we awakened. And then the most beautiful thing is that for two hours before dawn, we sing in the sun. The men, in particular, sit around the fire and sing in the sun while the women are preparing breakfast. The warriors have watched over the camp from a hillside to the east for the whole night. And the community is united in that way. But then something interesting happened, which is just after dawn, I see Grandfather Leon coming back to camp. That's with, And as it turned out, he had received a message that people were lost and he had gone to retrieve them. It wasn't a cell phone message. It wasn't an email, because none of that stuff worked out there. It was just a psychic message, and then by, I guess you'd call it in the Western way, remote viewing, he connected with these, with these, uh, with them, and he brought them back into camp. 
And so the next, so Grandfather Leon was not there to whisper in my ear at the time that I heard that. So the next day, or, or that day, when we went for a walk, I asked Grandfather Leon about that, but he refused to answer. He didn't say what happened. But then his son, Orlando Secretario, his eldest son, offered an explanation and said that it was the fire itself that spoke to me, disguising its voice as Leon, to get my attention so I would listen. And that's the origin, really, of original thinking. Fascinating. Glenn, tell us what the indigenous or your understanding is of consciousness. How, did, how is this possible? Thank you. Um, so, when to return to the story briefly, I first surmised that Grandfather Leon had bilocated his consciousness and somehow observed that the fire was dimming and had communicated to me uh, remotely. But his son Orlando had offered an alternative explanation, which is ultimately far more intriguing, which is that the fire was speaking to me directly, disguising its voice as Grandfather Leon's to get my attention. Um, and the second one is so much more intriguing because I've come to believe that that really is how consciousness occurs. Consciousness is a relationship that we have with nature. And uh, we are not the uh, creator of our thoughts in the way that we ordinarily think of this in the Western scientific way. This concept that consciousness is an epiphenomenon of the brain that as a, as a uh, outcome of neuronal um, action, we create thoughts, I don't believe is the case. And, you know, you can experiment with this on your own. I ask your audience, I ask you, Miriam, um, have you ever moved from one room to another when you intend to get something, but then when you get in that other room, you kind of forget why you went there? Oh, that's right? called the doorway phenomenon, yes. <laughs> and then you go back to the other room and... You remember it again um, because because your your consciousness, your thoughts do have a place they do thoughts have a life of their own, you know, and this is something I was able to observe in dialogue circles, you know dialogue circles that are that are very well conducted um, typically have an opening to the east, and it's understood that that opening is there to allow spirit to enter the room. And when you've been in dialogue long enough, you begin to realize that what you feel you are thinking, you see somebody else opening their mouth and saying those exact same thoughts. And you begin to realize that thought is actually moving through the room. And all of, all of our communication is like that, really. As Rumi speaks about, it's a field of engagement. And, and uh, we're sharing thoughts. When you have a loved one that finishes your sentences, you know, then you know that you're in good communion, you know. Um, I've, uh, I've experienced with my own wife, I've been married for 26 years, where I haven't said anything sometimes where I'm just thinking something inside 
inside inside and she'll answer out loud <laughs> those kinds of things happen all the time because really the our thoughts are not our thoughts in the way that we ordinarily uh, speak of them um, they have a life of their own that's very very important one of the purposes of the book original thinking is to reclaim i consider original thinking a reclamation project so in modern in modern times we overemphasize the mental rational aspect of cognition but all of it from from the gut instincts to the to the to the heartfelt yearnings to our intuitions all of that is a continuum of thought and it unfolds in that way and and if it unfolds in that way rational thinking will be rooted in the living world which is the way it was for the ancient Greeks and I, I do talk about this in the book because the actual origin of the word rational is ratio which which is a relationship between things and for the ancient Greeks the proportionality of the relationship was key so that's why they spoke about the golden mean and the and the sacred ratio and and that was beautiful so for the ancient Greeks rational thought was the pinnacle of thought just like we think about it today but for the Greeks it was also the most beautiful form of thought yet to arise and I think we need to recover that beauty in our thinking you also have a great sense of urgency destiny about this time where you suggest that as we um, divorce ourselves from identification with the natural world um, we are um, in danger of really terminating ourselves. The, the earth will continue, but um, what we're doing will have great impact on, on the survival of humanity. How do we shift from that path? How do we, I'm sorry? Shift. Shift. How do we shift from that path? Well, um, I'm more optimistic than some because I do think we are actually shifting as we speak, um, and and that is a good thing. So it's we imagine that we're not shifting, and that is dangerous. We imagine that we're proceeding to progress in a line away from our origins, away from other species away sometimes from other other uh, people. We sometimes dehumanize other people, um, and uh, often, actually. Um, and that's really a obvious obvious problem, one that, one that does threaten the existence of the human race and, in fact, already has doomed many other species to extinction. Um, but... I'm more optimistic. I think we're actually we're actually already shifting our consciousness um, more than we are aware of. And let me point that out because it's really um, my purpose, my overwhelming purpose in the book is to acknowledge the positive seeds that are already occurring and then to water those seeds rather than to dwell on 
the ways that we are uh, going adrift. Um, so, for instance, we were talking about linear perspective before. I'll bring it back through to the art world even. You know, what's happened in the art world is a good way of looking at consciousness because it's a reflection of it. So in the last uh, 100, 150 years from the French Impressionist, then moving toward in so-called modern art with Picasso, Matisse, Braque, the, the linear, rigid way of, of viewing the world has been broken up. It's been, we're breathing fresh air into that. And that's because we're preparing for a world post-linear. And we're, uh, we're getting ready to re-experience and remember that full consciousness. Is that what you mean by the circle of life? Yeah, that's part of it, yes. Okay. Well, we'll pick that up. Uh, when we come back from our break, we're speaking, if you've just joined us, with Glenn Aparicio Parry, talking about his book, Original Thinking. And Glenn, your um, website is originalthinking.us. Is that right? Correct. I usually say us, like you and me. Very good. <laughs> we'll be right back. been trying to get your attention? What will it take for you to start to listen? I'm Miriam Knight and I interviewed 37 individuals from all walks of life for our book, What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. In it they describe the cosmic two-by-fours that changed their lives and their answers may make you rethink your own ideas about the nature of reality. Available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, or ask for it at your local bookstore. What Wags the World? Tales of Conscious Awakening. You want HealthyLife.net radio programming everywhere? TuneIn Radio is your mobile solution. The app is available for iPhone, BlackBerry, and Android phones. Search your app store today. Search for TuneIn and take HealthyLife.net radio programming everywhere you go. Aparicio Parry and Original Thinking. Glenn, just before the break, we were talking about um, circular things, the circle of life, the sacred hoop. Tell us about that. Mm. Well, the sacred hoop is a way of expressing a radical interconnection with life. Um, it's, I think it's very often misunderstood in the in the modern world um, in the postcard world um, there's many levels 
of understanding. And I don't claim to have reached the deepest level myself. But um, when when one sits, at, you know, I've had certain experiences like sitting on Vision Quest, and I begin to I begin to see life as an orchestra of things all happening at the same time, as things that naturally go together. And I'm reminded of what uh, Tobasanaquit Canoe, an important teacher to me, uh, an Anishinaabe, uh, said, which is, what kinds of things want to happen together? And that's a really important focus um, in trying to understand the circle of life. Because when you start to think like that, you start to become, your, your consciousness becomes a little wider and hopefully a little wiser. And as opposed to the other great phrase that was coined by Vandana Shiva, which is monocultures of the mind. <laughs> now, the, the mind that is a monocultural mind is the one who conceives of planting the same plants every year as a cash crop. And, of course, this really hurts the soil. So we pour fertilizers and pesticides to try to preserve the soil. But the one who's thinking about the circle of life recognizes that nature has already provided ways in which balance can occur. So, you know, I, I was reading uh, Masanobu Fukuoka, I believe, a long time ago, and he was talking about how uh, a field that had had pesticides uh, strewn on it, that a dream appeared where one of the one of the bugs that used to be it would eat the plants, but not in a way that would kill them, was uh, forced to go deep underground because of the pesticides that were applied, and was now eating the roots and killing the plants. And so the dream is the dream is really coming through with a sharp and clear message that, look, this is what you've done to me. This is what I have to do. I didn't want it this way, but now this is the only way I can survive by killing your plants. Um, so there's there's so so many ways that nature is radically interconnected. Um, we we simply need to open our eyes and start looking at that and start immersing ourselves in that as opposed to looking at it with the human eye and thinking of how can we manipulate this for our benefit. Um, we really need to think of the whole. Because ultimately, we're so tied to the whole that if we try to go about that way of thinking of ourselves only and being selfish in that way, we end up destroying ourselves. So there really is no course now but to recover the way that we used to think. There is nothing like self-interest to focus the mind. Um, I, I want to go back to what you said about things that want to happen together. And you, in the book, uh, brought that up in the context of scientific um, research and a, a kind of a new, a renewed approach to um, looking at uh, 
research and technology in the context of, of whole systems coming together. Um, mm. You, uh, Thank you. G- give us some further elucidation on this. Mm. Well, what Leroy Little Bear used to say is that research is renewal. And whoa, what a beautiful idea. <laughs> it kind of blew me away. I, I have a confession um, to make, which is every re, every word that starts with the re in the English language, I love. <laughs> and there's a reason for that. <laughs> that starts with a re, too, doesn't it? Um, but in a different way. Um, and, and, and the reason is because things, there is no such thing that's new, really. I really don't believe in linear time. That is an illusion. The, I never say, Happy New Year. I might say, Happy Renew, or Happy Renew Year. <laughs> Every January 1st is a heck of a lot similar to the previous January 1st, or at least where I've been. It's generally cold. It's, it's darker. It's winter. You know, we've been here before. Um, and, and so research is renewal is really a, a beautiful concept because all of a sudden we're grounding the original impulse of educating, which was the impulse to learn and grow as all of nature learns and grows. Um, we're now grounding that into what could be used even in academic circles. Um, and, and now we're looking to help the world. We're looking to renew uh, the world, not trying to think of something brand new. Um, so we have, the, we have the word in, uh, in academic circles. If, you've, if, if any of your listeners have gone through academic training, they tell you you have to do original research. But what they mean by that actually is part of the linear model of replicate and then extend. They're going to say, you're going to reproduce, you know, the things that a hundred other people have done, and then you're going to add your little piece at the end, and that's going to create this line of linear progress, supposedly. Um, but um, if you think about research as renewal, we're thinking about it in terms more of a circle of life, and we're really engaging on a some kind of project that actually has a, an immediate benefit for the community in which you embed the research. And it's, it's one in which you are actually aligning yourself with a greater purpose. So it's, it's a very beautiful idea. You know, the whole, sh- the whole part of the book on education is uh, really about reimagining knowledge as something that arises with the patterns of nature. This is the way I also revision thought as arising with the patterns of nature. And so that, in that way, we're reimagining education not as the accumulation of knowledge, but as the renewal of knowledge. Do you see what I'm saying? Indeed. Mm. Um, you mention Aristotle um, and his original view of economics as being something called Chematistics or something? Oh, chromastics. Where um, the goal actually is to increase the overall good so that everyone benefits 
and um, I thought that was a very powerful image to see if we could implant in society somewhere. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll I know we're to... coming up on the break, but really briefly, it's the uh, the original form of economics was oikonomia, um, um, comes from the Greek oikos, which has to do with with caring for the home. So. Economics is related to ecology. Both have the eco, which is which comes from the Greek oikos, and it had, the nomos part comes is management. So okay. economics well. is management of the home, just like we used to take in home economics. <laughs> and after the break, we could get into that a little bit more, if you wish. Indeed, hold that thought. Um, okay. We will be back with our guest, Glenn Aparicio Parry. Aparicio Parry and original thinking. Um, I did get the wrong end of the stick before the break on the notion of economics. Where did we go wrong, Glenn? Mm. Well, um, in the book, Original Thinking, I do something kind of radical that I did not plan on doing. I mean, the truth of the matter is I um, the book the book itself was designed to mirror questions, mirror like a dialogue circle. So I pose questions, and um, uh, when you do that in a dialogue, you never know where it's going to go. And to some extent, that happened in the book. And then, you know, because I knew that I was just getting deeper and deeper. And for economics, I really wanted to revision economics to its living roots, and for me, that actually has to do with water, because I think of economics as a living enterprise. I mean, when you, this is a real positive slant, because most people are, are kind of, at this point in life, usually start to get annoyed with the economic idea, thinking that money is evil or something like that. But let's look at it maybe a little bit differently, and just the exchange of energy that occurs when you just go to a store and you talk to the clerk and you start to get in a good conversation. You know, you might forget to get bring your packages home. That's because you're exchanging, a, it's a fluid exchange of energy. Um, and so uh, that's the way that I wanted to revise and, and, and get to the roots, the living roots of economics. Um, and the living roots of economics do come from ecology, and they come ultimately from our radical interconnection with the world. And we need to remember that um, when we're doing the exact opposite in the modern conception, which is close to that that uh, that word chromastics, which was frowned upon in the ancient world, um, we are now thinking in very selfish ways. We're doing, as uh, Buffy St. Marie said, we're carving up nature on a luncheon plate and calling it real estate. You know, um, we are ignoring every aspect of the living interconnection of the natural world if human beings don't have some interest in it. So unless we so-called develop the land, it doesn't count, you know. So that, that's, a, that's a pretty bizarre concept since all of our happiness, all of our peace of mind 
is ultimately coming from that living nature, well, living water, the living earth, the living air, and the living, you know, all of it is alive, really. So that's kind of where we're going there. The thrust of the book for me was reconnecting into this integral fabric of creation, of life. And it's it's like if you cut out one little piece, then the edges start to fray. It's only when the piece remains whole that you can shape and drape it. That's right. There's a very big difference between parts and fragments, as David Bohm used to point out. You can take a watch and you can take it apart carefully and put it back together. But you could also smash that watch with a hammer. And we've done a little bit too much of smashing things with hammers. Um, and uh, we need to instead be more attentive to the way things go together. So our consciousness has has excelled, actually, at looking at parts um, and, and dividing the world into specializations. And that can be very beneficial. But I think we've all experienced how that's gone too far. You know, people go into a doctor or something. A lot of times elderly people who are going to see five or six different specialists who are not talking to each other. Each one is prescribing a different drug. Yeah. They're, they're giving different drugs that don't interact well with each other and stuff. And they, Or even or perhaps they're taking herbs, too. This happens for some of my conscious friends taking things like, you know, ginkgo or something. Ginkgo is, uh, is a blood thinner. I mean, but a lot of people yeah. don't know that. You know? <laughs> so, I mean, there's, there's a lot of things that uh, we need to be relating together. We need to recover that. Um, and uh, this is what I'm trying to say. It's not about saying that uh, rational thought isn't necessary, but if we can recover the roots of it, which is in a living connection to nature, then we can act from a little bit of a wiser place. Um, and it almost reminds me also, I'll put it in terms sometimes of feminine and masculine ways too, because I've... I've, uh, I remember Oki Semini Forrest, maybe you know her, you know, talking about how in, in, her, in, in her ancient ways, um, uh, the, the circle, the inner circle would be the women. The outer circle were the men. I think that happened a lot, actually. And the inner circle kind of set the direction, provided the wisdom. And then the outer circle was the one that initiated action in the world. That masculine ability to initiate action in the world is very important, but it needs to be grounded in wisdom. Otherwise, it can destroy the earth. <laughs> so, so we've seen evidence of both. We've seen beautiful, uh, we've seen initiatory action in the world that has really helped the world. And that's what you were talking about with technology. And we've also seen technology that can destroy the world, such as an atomic bomb. Yeah. Well, tell us about this think tank that you started, the Circle for Original Thinking. Thank you. Uh, and I say thank you because we, we like to, to consider the think tank to be a think tank <laughs> because one of the things that we, that we realize is that 
originally our thinking came from thanking. And by the way, that's true in at least seven languages. And, uh, uh, the origin of thinking is thanking. In, in English, it came in from the proto-Germanic pankas. And, uh, uh, and there's a relationship between thinking and thanking or, or giving gratitude. Um, so that's where we want to start from blessing. That's why I asked you if we could start with a prayer when we did our, our, uh, interview here today. I always like to begin from blessing. And that is a form of wholeness. And, and then uh, one of the prayers that I say every day is to be, is to remember that uh, the ancestors and to be thankful for everything that has happened to bring us to this moment in time. That's really looking at life as blessing. So the Circle for Original Thinking is this inclusive grassroots organization that's honoring the ancient and the modern, the feminine and the masculine, indigenous Eastern and Western, Western philosophies through their deep interconnected roots. We're and where starting can find from out more about banking. It? And we're going out, we're, we're seeking to bring heart-centered wisdom into uh, the contemporary decision-making, which is not an easy thing to do, um, but it's very important. So would that be on your website, originalthinking.us? It would be under the tab Circle for Original Thinking. Very good. Well, we have been speaking with Glenn Aparicio Parry about his book, Original Thinking. Glenn, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Well, uh, until next week, when my guest will be Nick Jankel talking about switching on to our creativity. I hope you'll join us. And in the meantime, visit my website, ncreview.com. I'm Miriam Knight for New Consciousness Review. Be good to yourself, do good in the world, and let your light shine.